This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Hello, I'm Carl Pillemer. I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research, and welcome to our podcast on Doing Translational Research. I'm extremely pleased to have as our guest today Dr. Monica Safford, who is the John J. Culper Professor of Medicine in the Department of Medicine and the Chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical College. And she's a clinician investigator with clinical expertise in preventive health care, the treatment of acute and chronic illness, and the coordination of care for those with complex diseases. She's an expert on patient-centered research on diabetes, cardiovascular epidemiology and prevention and health disparities. And she's done extremely interesting research on an underserved and largely African-American region called the Alabama Black Belt, where two-thirds of the adults are obese and many have diabetes, hypertension, or other chronic conditions. She studied how health coaches and other non-traditional interventions can affect patient outcomes. And we're absolutely thrilled to have you um, with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks so much. And we'd like to begin for our listeners by asking you just to uh, to share a little bit about your general research interests. So um, um, another way to think about this is what are the key question or questions that your research program tries to answer? Sure. So we, we really focus on uh, the segment of society that has the greatest burden of chronic disease, and that's poor people. Um, and they have much worse health outcomes than everybody else. And I think especially in the United States, uh, where we cherish equality, uh, focusing on how to improve health outcomes for this segment of the population is really the, the core question uh, that, we, that we have in, in our research program. Uh, I can't resist asking, we hear so much about rising inequality. Mm-hmm. Have people correlated that over time with um, increasing health problems for people on the lower end of the spectrum? Sure. I mean, are health disparities increasing as economic disparities are? Yes. I think there's a, there's a very strong correlation. So uh, the more poor people, the more uh, uh, disparities there are. And I think one of the more concerning things uh, is that we are seeing a number of health indicators moving in the wrong direction, and they, they are moving in the wrong direction most rapidly for the poorest in the, in the society. Uh, so uh, we have these uh, data that show what your life expectancy is at uh, age 50, um, and comparing that from 1980 to 2010, over that 30-year time period, uh, the, the wealthiest Americans had a wonderful gain, uh, but the poorest Americans, actually women, uh, lost in life expectancy, uh, which is a very concerning observation that uh, drives a lot of the work that we do. And for you as a physician who, with whom we associate you know, treating individual cases, does this bring you into the policy arena to some extent? I would think it would seem to me that some of the solutions for this uh, aren't really individually based. They're also more, you know, policy based. Oh, sure. I mean, I think uh, one of the frustrations that we had in the program that we have in the Black Belt was the lack of the infrastructure to sustain the su- successful programs. Uh, it, it's always 
I chuckle when people say, what is the health system like in the black belt? There is no health system. It's a bunch of mom and pop individual practices that are really trying to uh, scrape by. And in many cases, they're, they're on the verge of bankruptcy almost continuously. Uh, and those are the folks who are on the front lines trying to help these people. Uh, we have a, um, a trial that's now in the field um, evaluating peer coaches and uh, practice facilitation where somebody comes in and helps the practice learn how to do quality improvement techniques. And uh, we are getting estimates of, for the first time of the practice level blood pressure control rates in some of these private practices, they're as low as 20 to 30%. So nationally in federally qualified health centers, most federally qualified health centers, which are, uh, their clientele is entirely poor people, are achieving 50 to 60%. Uh, so these poor small practices are out there uh, needing a lot of help to, um, to, to help these patients. But the, the, the policy uh, for specifically for these practices is nearly absent. Uh, so we're looking at MACRA coming, uh, which is going to have a much bigger emphasis on quality metrics. These practices are just not prepared for that kind of thing. Uh, the federally qualified health centers have been doing this forever, and they're exempt from MACRA. Uh, uh, and what is MACRA? So MACRA is sort of a uh, an underappreciated, uh, complete re-engineering of the way care is going to be reimbursed uh, that is being phased in already as we speak this year uh, over a two or three year time period. Um, I think there is a little bit of recognition that rural America may need to have some special uh, considerations. Right now what they've done is extended a hand where that you can get special consultative services to figure out how to get the quality metrics and report them. Uh, but there's going to be punishment for people who don't report the, the quality metrics. I believe it's as early as next year. And the margins for some of these practices is ridiculous, less than 1%. Uh, so if they have any lower reimbursement rates, many of them will close, mm. uh, which is going to create a crisis in rural America because they already have way too few physicians. Uh, so the policy relevance is really huge. Um, a big problem that we have is where's the infrastructure to sustain a peer coaching program? And we had great hopes because there was some vague language in the Affordable Care Act about this that hasn't really come to fruition. Uh, so you have community health workers right now in a lot of federally qualified health centers, uh, Department of Health, uh, New York State and New York City especially has them. But it's, it's a very hard thing to pull off in small private practices, especially in rural America. Uh, so, you know, having conversations with policymakers and really thinking about uh, how we can generate the evidence to justify policies and modify policies to help them. That's, that's sort of where we are. Now, I find it interesting that you're a specialist on healthcare in rural America and we're at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and now are in New York City. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little more about that. We live, people don't realize though, that where we are in Ithaca, New York, uh, that we're surrounded by extensive rural poverty. Yes. But I think the kind of areas you're studying in the Black Belt are even a different level of rural poverty. Yeah. Could you just talk a little bit about what you encounter there in terms of the health problems and lack of delivery systems? Yes. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was shocking, I have to say. You know, it I was educated in the Northeast, I went to Ivy League schools, and I had never heard of the Black Belt before I got to Birmingham. 
And it, it driving around in the Black Belt, uh, you really feel like you're in rural Africa in many ways. Um, there are large uh, swaths of, of the area where you, you don't have any cell phone coverage. Very few people have internet coverage in their homes. Um, there's frequent blackouts whenever there's a thunderstorm, the electricity goes down. Uh, and many people can't afford their electric bills, so they go without. Uh, and the, the knowledge that people have about chronic diseases is nearly absent. So the, the amount of education, especially about health and ways to prevent diseases and also to manage them once you get them, is, is nearly absent. Uh, so it was, it was a shock. Um, but uh, what was amazingly rewarding was to see how many people there are in the community who care about this and who care about their neighbors and their friends and who want to do something about it. And we were lucky enough to identify a few key people in that, in that group who really mobilized their social networks to help us with our studies. Well, and you've led me into my next question very effectively, which was one of the um, uh, areas that, that we like to discuss with people is actually how they do this kind of work. Um, and I know that your work has involved community agencies, um, non-academic providers and groups. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, what the experience of working with a non-academic partners has been and what challenges you might have, have encountered and ways you may have overcome them. Because I know this has been a big part of what you've been working yes. on. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, I, I joke with our team that implementation science is not for the faint of heart. Uh, because when you work with community partners, especially in impoverished areas, you have to be prepared for unexpected things. Um, my, my partners will probably kill me for saying this out loud, but the latest challenge that we encountered is apparently there are some uh, rivalries going on in one of the counties where we are, and they are actually having shooting matches. Uh, so now we had to have a crisis conference about what we're going to be doing with our community health workers and uh, also our data collection staff because we didn't want them to get in the line of fire. Uh, we've had uh, organizations that shut down, uh, usually abruptly, so that you leaves you scrambling to figure out who your next community partner is going to be. Um, there are all sorts of unexpected small crises that occur in this kind of work that you just have to have a lot of resilience. And uh, what's in enormously rewarding is everybody gets together and just sort of brainstorms and figures out the solution. So somehow every single crisis that we've had, we've managed to come out the other end. And it, in large part, it's because of the resourcefulness of the community. You know, they know other organizations. They will be able to assess... Uh, you know, let's go in this direction and not that direction. Let's avoid this church and not that church. Um, so navigating that that sort of uh, next solution is it wouldn't be possible without having this these strong partnerships. Um, and how do you overcome you know the top down feel of um, you know kind of academic um, a physician researcher coming in yeah. and people's a distrust of now increasingly of universities at all, but also of um, medical studies. Have you found ways to get around what might be um, an initial negative reaction or distrust? Yes. Uh, so this is critical. Um, you know, I, I think the whole model of community-based participatory research has evolved. And 
I really like to think of what we are doing as community-partnered research. And the, the way to get around this is, A, you have got to have a long-term commitment. Uh, so we're on our fourth study over an 11-year time period. So I think they realize that, you know, we really do have a commitment to improving the health of those communities. And I think, B, it's really important to define your role. So you, you don't want to pretend that you're a member of the community because you're not and you never will be. But at the same time, you come in with knowledge and skills that they don't have. Uh, so you build a team. And the team has very well-defined roles. So they are the experts in their community, and you are the expert at health. And you respect each other. Um, and if they tell you that you're not paying enough for the stipends for the community health workers, you better increase the stipends for the community health workers. Um, and if you're telling, you know, if I tell them, look, we can't do it this way because it's not healthy, then they listen to us and they they uh, they acquiesce and they, you know, we work together in that way. So it, it is really understanding team dynamics and uh, working and nurturing the team approach to doing this kind of science. And, and the crux of it is making sure that you don't come in with all the answers. You have your knowledge and they have their knowledge and both are equally important. I think it's a great point. Yeah, and I, like you, find it very personally rewarding. Um, we have faculty here in the Bronfenbrenner Center who've been doing research on our equivalent of white mice, namely college undergraduates, um, and then really want to come and do research in real world settings. And even though it's messy, They've become converted to this, I think. I mean, there are highs to it that you don't get, I think, in other kinds of research. Oh, I would absolutely agree with that. In fact, there's no turning back. I, I always tell everybody, once you start doing this stakeholder-engaged research, it's like getting a microwave. You know, you can't do without it because it changes everything that you do. I mean, it's, it, it's so funny how uh, sometimes as academics we get overly concerned about things that are... Uh, not concerning at all to community members. I, one of my favorite examples is the spiral of doom. So when you when you do uh, um, cognitive behavioral work, uh, catastrophizing is a very big, prominent aspect of that, and you try to get people not to catastrophize. But that word, catastrophizing, is a little difficult. Psychologists know what that means, but people in the community may not. And there was a great deal of worry on the, in, among the investigators that, uh, we have to come up with some sort of a euphemism that will be better understood. So my daughter actually was the one, of course, I share all of our, our work when I go home at the dinner table, um, who said, well, why don't you just call it the spiral of doom? Isn't that sort of what it is? <laughs> and I suggested this to the investigators, and they were very concerned that it was way too dramatic. And when we uh, did the focus groups with, with our community partners, they loved the idea. They said, this is exactly what it feels like. You it know, sounds a little like out of Harry Potter. Yeah. You know, Harry Potter and the Spiral of Doom. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, I like it, though. That, yeah. No, but I think that's, that is really a, um, a great example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it, and it, it always talking in the dialogue and, and prioritizing and finding ways to do projects that are both within the scope of your work, which is challenging. I mean, this is really not easy. Uh, I'm lucky because I'm a generalist, so I was able to take this right turn and do work in pain that I had never done before. Uh, but somebody who's more narrowly focused um, has to do a little bit more work to find what's the next project going to look like because it has to be something that is a priority for the community members. Um, so far, we haven't had trouble, and we're on our fourth trial. So That's great. Well, let me ask you one last question before our time is up. 
Um, thinking about the general area in which you do research, what are two or three things that you would like uh, the general public, so to speak, to know about? Or, you know, if there was some piece or pieces of information that you could get out sort of based in your area, are there a few that come to mind as most important? Yeah, I think there's a a, a big underappreciation for uh, the chronic disease burden in poor communities. Um, I think a lot of people just don't recognize that, and it, it's not surprising. Uh, it, it's not in the news. It's not you know sexy information that can sell uh, papers and journals. Uh, so that just the recognition that the, here are these people that have very few resources that are also overburdened with uh, with illnesses that magnify the problems that they have with trying to get a regular source of income. Um, and I think the other the other piece that's so critically important is uh, not forgetting about rural America. I think we saw in the recent election what happens when we do that. Uh, but there are very special problems that rural Americans face, and you know demographically, ten to fifteen percent of our population lives in rural areas, so it's a little easy to not pay attention to them. Uh, but they are part of our country, and their special problems really deserve uh, more attention. All righty. Well, thanks so much, and I wish that we could go on longer, and that is both interesting and really inspiring work. Uh, and I'd like to thank all of you for joining us on doing translational research and hope you will join us in our next podcast. information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.